der Triathlon Show 375. What's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm Rose Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Alexander Coates. Alexander is a researcher at the McMaster University in Canada and also a former elite short course triathlete and triathlon coach. We'll discuss a few different topics but uh, one of the main ones and the first one is on cardiac function and structure in endurance sports and uh, things that you can do in terms of training to make your heart function uh, as best as it possibly can and improve it over time. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you unprecedented real-time feedback in your swim training through your display on the goggle lens. You can see every split, you can keep track of your stroke rate and you can use heart rate through the integration with polar heart rate monitors and all of this will help you execute your swims more optimally with better pacing both within intervals and from interval to interval you will be able to better control the intensity of the workout when you have heart rate and you get access to in-depth post-swim analysis in the app where you can see metrics like distance per stroke and this app also syncs your workout seamlessly to for example training peaks strava and so on the app also has a vast library of workouts and training plans or you can build your own guided workouts to execute with the help of the goggles Get 15% off your goggles with the code TTS15 on formswim.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim, or to do swim bike brick workouts more easily you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get a special bundle including the swim bench and a number of senate training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash tts one final thing before we get into the interview as this episode comes out on the 30th of January, I will be recording the next Q&A episode in a couple of days after the episode. this episode is released. So on the 1st or 2nd of February or so, I will sit down to record the next Q&A. If you have questions about swim training for triathlon, which is the topic of that Q&A, that you want answered on that Q&A episode, then please send them to me on email or message me on Instagram, and I'll try to get them in that Q&A episode. Now, without any further ado, here's Dr. Alexander Coates. Welcome to Dutch Raffle Show, Alex. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. Can you start by giving an introduction uh, of yourself to the audience? Tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Um, I did my PhD in Guelph with Dr. Jamie Burr, and I used to be an elite triathlete and a triathlon coach. So I kind of have that background in triathlon and then that kind of art of coaching and mixed with the science. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a lot about the science uh, very soon. So just before that, can you tell us a bit more about your triathlon background? First and foremost, what level were you racing at and for how long? Sure. So I was an elite ITU uh, so like Olympic distance triathlete, I was on the national training team or in the national training center from the age of about 18 to 25. Um, so really kind of throughout that junior and then U23 and then elite ITU racing. Um, my best results, I, I went to U23 Worlds twice. Um, I won nationals, elite nationals in 2015. So it's kind of like right on the cusp of of doing good things. Uh, but then I retired right before the Rio Olympics because I started my master's. So didn't quite make it yeah, there. Yeah. And, mm. and coaching wise, did you start coaching after retiring from racing yourself? Yeah. So I started coaching also around the time when I um, retired because I needed the money. <laughs> um, and I coached mostly kind of age group or just that early level developmental elite type um, athlete. Right. And I understand that that's something that you, coaching is something you recently retired from as well to focus on on your academic studies. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. I, I think my last athlete um, was in December. So I just recently retired from coaching. Um, but yeah, it was a good seven or eight years of coaching and 
yeah. I'm happy now to just focus on research and science. And yeah, yeah. So on the science and academic side, uh, can you give an overview of the different uh, topics and areas that you have been working in? Yeah, so I think coming from that triathlon background, I have this interest in anything to do with overtraining or underfueling or pushing too hard or, you know, ultra endurance, that kind of that kind of area. So my master's research was on overreaching and we did some cardiovascular and autonomic kind of consequences of overreaching. So that moderate overtraining. I also did a bit of REDS work and iron deficiency work at that time. And then my PhD kind of morphed into a more cardiac focus. And I was looking at exercise-induced cardiac fatigue. So my theory at the time was that exercise-induced cardiac fatigue might be driving some of these symptoms of underperformance with overreaching. Um, I didn't really fully answer that question, but I did, but I did do some work with ultramarathon and some kind of cool exercise-induced cardiac fatigue studies throughout my PhD. Um, and then now I'm really kind of switching into more of a performance focus. So I'm with Dr. Martin Gabala here at McMaster. We're doing some interval training, you know, high intensity intervals versus sprint intensity intervals, um, and more of a performance kind of focus. So yeah, whole range. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I was looking through your, your research gate profile, it, you do see that range of, of those different areas. And, and I think the, the thing that really piques my interest the most at this point in time, anyway, there's always something that is more interesting than, than other things at, at any given time, uh, was the cardiac uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you mentioned both the, how it relates to overreaching potentially, but also just you have some, some work on general cardiac functions and, and adaptations to, to endurance training. So, and, and this is an area that I've never done an episode about in many, many episodes on this podcast. So I thought that, Hey, actually this is something that I should do an episode about. And, and that's why I reached out to you. So maybe we can start by a, an overview of, of the heart and its function during endurance exercise. So we make sure that everybody's on, on the same boat before we dive deeper into the details. Sure. So super broadly, I mean, we all kind of know the heart is responsible for pumping blood to the body. Um, the right ventricle, of course, is is going to pump your deoxygenated blood through the pulmonary circulation to oxygenate that hemoglobin. And then the left ventricle is responsible for pumping the rest of the, that oxygenated blood to to your body, to the muscles, to the working muscles. And really, the responsibility of the heart is to deliver that oxygenated blood while maintaining a given amount of pressure so that you don't lose pressure to the brain and essentially pass out. So it's, it's very much regulated around maintaining blood pressure during exercise and then also that delivery of oxygenated blood uh, to the muscles. So it's kind of this kind of fight between pressure and, and delivery, I guess. Mm. And uh, mm -hmm. what, what is the difference between the heart of an extremely a world-class athlete let's say and somebody completely sedentary off the couch yeah so the biggest difference one of the biggest physiological differences between elite athletes and just you know, you know your average person is that heart volume and the amount of blood that the heart can pump out per beat so that's your stroke volume and that does yeah make up one of the biggest differences between even just an average athlete and an elite athlete um so yeah we're looking at these very large increases in chamber size uh with an endurance athlete so they have very big atria very big ventricles and then also the walls of an endurance athlete of the of the atria and the ventricles are thin relative to the ventricle size so they're they're strong but they're not thickened in such a way that you would get if you were a resistance athlete so yeah with a resistance or a concentric type adaptation to exercise you get this thickening of the walls without that ventricular diameter internal diameter and endurance it's just big big internal diameter so that you can pump out lots of blood so so the difference there between the resistance trained person and the endurance athlete is that 
the thickening of the of the wall it decreases the potential for volume is that is that why yes, that difference exactly yeah. so it's like with endurance athletes we call it a volume overload so the whole point is you're trying to pump out more blood more volume and then with resistance athletes it's a pressure overload and so they have to just work against these extremely high pressures and so that's why they have this increase in muscle thickness and not so, and not like ventricular internal diameter whereas yeah endurance it's all about diameter mm. so the stroke volume so the volume of of blood that is uh, pumped out in in a heartbeat it, that is most is it mostly related to the the volume of the of the ventricle or or is there also a force component or a strength component of the of the heart as a muscle tissue yeah so there's a couple components so there's going to be your blood volume in general so another Another adaptation that elite athletes have is much greater blood volumes than your regular kind of person. So we have this increase in blood volume. um, And then we have this increase in heart size. So the heart kind of adapts to accommodate this increased blood volume. So you can pump more blood per beat. And then there's also going to be increased contractility of the heart. So the heart can pump harder. And there's increased compliance. So the heart um, is better able to relax and fill. And that allows um, for even more blood to kind of get sucked into the heart during diastole. And then with more blood in the heart, then you can pump more blood out. So it's kind of this system, this network, and all of these components act to um, increase stroke volume. Mm. And uh, how do these, if if we take these differences that we see in a, in a well-trained endurance athlete versus a, a sedentary person, um, how, what are they a result of? And, and are they, which, which adaptations in structure and function are more quick and which are much longer term that takes years and years to develop, if you can give an overview of that? Yeah, good question. So when we're thinking of, say, someone who starts an exercise program, Um, Right off the bat, within even one session, you can have an increase in plasma volume. And especially if that session's intense. So yeah, one intense exercise session, you can have an increase in plasma volume. So that's going to increase your overall blood volume a little bit. Um, And that does help to increase, say, VO2 max. So even just a tiny bit of additional blood volume can help increase VO2 max. And that happens after one session. And so within you know, seven to 14 days of exercise, you have this plasma volume expansion. And then on top of that, within about 30 days, you're going to have an increase in the hemoglobin. So the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Um, So that, you know, we've got now a month of training and you have this increased blood volume with the increased hemoglobin. Um, Within weeks, you're going to see some of these increases in say capillarity so you've got more um ability to to deliver the blood to the muscles uh, you also see those the increase in mitochondria at the muscles so the mitochondrial density and the mitochondrial content um and so that happens within you know over weeks and then it's months to years of training where you start to see these big changes in cardiac um adaptation so certainly the longest the thing to change last is going to be your heart um, muscle. And if you think about it, like if you're doing strength training and you're trying to build up muscle, it's not going to happen overnight, right? It takes a long time. And so that's the same with heart tissue. It's just going to take, you know, weeks, months um, before you see these big adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that makes, makes a lot of sense. And uh, mm-hmm. how, how much are some of these or any of these adaptations rate limiters uh, rate limiting factors for endurance performance uh, and i guess it might also depend on uh, for one person it might be and for another it might not but can you can you explain uh, where where these cardiac adaptations might fall on that spectrum yes so if we're talking about vo2 max which is kind of like our primary marker i guess of endurance performance aerobic capacity um we tend to say that there's a central limitation to VO2 max. And so what that means is that in well-trained individuals, the yeah, rate limiting you know, factor or the, the, the main thing that is limiting our improvement in VO2 max is 
heart and blood distribution related, I guess. So it's, it's very central. Um, so I'll explain that further. So if you're lesser trained, then you may have, you know, um, the rate limiting step could be oxygen extraction at the muscle. And so that's going to be driven primarily by the mitochondria in the muscle. So certainly that is, you know, can play a role and, you know, elite athletes have tons of mitochondria and tons of these peripheral adaptations. And so certainly that, you know, it's important, but at that high level, what we find is that the muscle can take up more oxygen during maximal exercise than is being delivered. And so we know that from studies where um, you do a single leg exercise and they're looking at blood flow through just the leg, say. So yes, you're doing single leg kicking to failure. And they're looking at the blood flow that is going through that leg. More oxygen can be extracted during that type of exercise than if you're doing a full body exercise. And the reason for that is because, of course, your body has to distribute the blood throughout throughout your whole body during a whole body exercise and once again maintain pressure and, and oxygen delivery to the brain. And so you simply cannot deliver enough blood to that to those muscles, to those working muscles, um, for for the oxygen extraction to be the limiting factor. And so then essentially it comes down to the heart being able to pump more blood um, that becomes I guess the main limiter to VO2 max in well-trained and elite athletes. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes makes mm. make complete sense. And and we, about VO2 max, we we know that of course between between different let's say levels of athletes, it you can use it very well to um to to predict performance if you want to call it that. Yeah, but exactly. but in a more but in more homogeneous sample, it's not really. A determining factor per se but it's it's a it's a ticket to the lottery but it uh is and you and you have to have it to to play the lottery let's say but then who wins at at any given level isn't uh, isn't only determined by vo2 max of course but it's it's very important for for performance exactly yeah 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 uh okay so so then if if the central uh central factors are are limiting and your your stroke volume then what is what does that tell us anything in terms of let's say long term athlete development or training interventions that we can or should do to um to make sure that we kind of work work on that and and not get limited by our stroke volume mm-hmm. so essentially, I think no matter what we will be limited by stroke volume, <laughs> like you know throughout a, a lifetime of training or whatever at the end of the day stroke volume ends up being the limiting factor almost always. Um, But that being said, if we're trying to specifically train stroke volume, um, there's certainly a lot of, of debate right now about different training adaptations for different types of intervals or, you know, let's say sprint intervals versus high intensity training kind of stuff or, or long zone two training. And everyone has their opinions on what, what does what um from my perspective if you're trying to increase maximal cardiac output and maximal stroke volume you have to train at that vo2 max essentially you're training this as close to vo2 max for as long as possible um in order to stimulate just maximal blood being returned to the heart and pumped out of the heart so that would fit right in with your kind of high intensity interval training or that repeated short bouts of um, like say 30 second high intensity work with 15 seconds of recovery and doing that over and over and over again. So you're just maintaining VO2 max for as long as possible. I know Ronstad uh, just came out with a paper with elite cyclists and they saw an increase in VO2 max um, in these elite cyclists who had a VO2 of 74 to begin with. And they did, what was it? It was like three sets of 13 times through this 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off. And the 30 seconds on was at the max sustainable effort. So kind of like your best average for the whole set. And then they had some recovery in between the three sets. And 
that resulted over, I think it was only three weeks in an improvement in VO2 max from 73 or 74 to like 75 or 76, which is crazy because you'd think these athletes wouldn't be able to improve their VO2 max. Um, how, so how, many times, sentence, how many times per week did they do uh, that workout? Oh, I don't know. I want to say three, two or three yeah. times a week. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's kind of crazy that like, if you can just prolong time at max, and then of course you have to recover from it. So yeah, you're not doing this a ton. Like, like you just kind of said, how many times a week you're doing it. Um, the rest of the training was probably pretty, pretty low level. Um, but yeah, prolonging that time at VO2 max is gonna, is gonna be, have the most potential for adaptation so long as you recover from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that make, makes sense. And that, uh, three sets of, uh, 13 times 30 seconds on 15 seconds off is the the classic one that uh, Renestad has been studying for ma- many years yeah. but it's cool yeah, to, exactly. to hear about that new study uh, I hadn't hadn't mm-hmm. seen that um, another mm-hmm. um, researcher that has done a lot of cool work and I've interviewed him on the podcast is uh, your compatriot Michael Rosenblatt he did a meta-analysis yeah. on uh, short and, and long Inter- or sprint intervals versus longer high intensity intervals and mm-hmm. that was that was quite good work and seeing that in terms of time trial performance uh the longer intervals were more effective but but of course that's not yeah. uh we were talking about vo2 max here and and uh yeah. that can then be a leading indicator of, of performance so um mm-hmm. yeah Th- yeah that's uh that's really good uh good information and uh, let me see here other than than that well i guess i guess one thing we see a lot of elite athletes do altitude training and and that's mainly mm-hmm. with the purpose of uh, of increasing their hemoglobin and their uh, the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood so can you explain from your perspective and how how does that how does that make sense in in this context is it because they maybe think that well it's the lowest hanging fruit and it might be impossible to uh to improve their vo2 max further uh or yeah what is what is the reason for focusing on that hemoglobin aspect of the cardiac cardiac system Mm -hmm. um yeah very good question i think that all if we're thinking about the athlete as a whole every little bit counts right (laughs) so it's like it's just like you know you're kind of going up a ladder and if you can increase oxygen carrying capacity that'll improve your performance by a tiny bit and if you can increase blood volume even a little more and you know it goes on and on until you get to this point where you're probably either maxed out or you're starting to see diminishing returns. Um, But yeah, so with altitude training, everyone's trying to get this, you know, last little 1% of performance. Right. And I actually did a, a presentation on this at our exercise physiology Canadian conference here this year. And it was about getting the most out of the elite athlete. And I was arguing if we should be focusing on, that last 1% or the other 99%. And to me, the other 99% is like getting your athlete to the start line healthy and, you know, ready to perform. And the 1% would be your interventions like altitude, heat, supplements, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think with altitude, yeah. So in a, with a proper altitude training protocol, when you come down, the athlete might get a 1% to 2% improvement in performance. Trick is that they can also have a negative performance if they come down and they're, you know, sick, if they got injured, if they didn't weren't able to do enough high-intensity training, or if they did high-intensity training, say, like, you know, live high, train low, but they weren't recovering properly from that high-intensity training. So it's like, you know, this risk benefit analysis. And at the end of the day, sure, some athletes might get that 1% and the others will do worse. Um, so yeah, for me, it's kind of like, it's this balance. It's like, can you maximize the 99% without putting the athlete at risk? Um, if you've done everything you possibly can and you and the athlete's healthy and adapting well, maybe that's when you would focus on this little bit extra, I guess. Right. Yeah. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, again, going back going back a bit to the adaptations to different types of training and training interventions. Um, low intent or these days, everybody wants to talk about zone two training. So yeah. <laughs> let's call it zone two <laughs> training. Uh, I I generally just call it low intensity training. But um, 
what is the yeah what what can we say about how that has an impact on well you can talk about generally if you want to but also specifically for the cardiac system mm-hmm. yeah so yeah like zone two training right now it's just blowing up on the internet um the like history of this low intensity training is is driven by the fact that high level endurance athletes and elite endurance athletes are training so much, right? They're training 20 to 35 hours a week. And so because of that volume, most of it is low intensity, right? Like 80% plus is going to be low intensity. And then the other 20% is where you get your, your medium and high intensity, let's call it. Um, and so, yeah, you get a lot of benefits and adaptation from the volume training. But if you think about how training works, <laughs> it works with overload. Like you overload your system and then you recover from that. And then that's where you get the benefits. And so where this kind of give and take comes from is that you can't do too much of that high intensity overload because you'll get injured, you'll get sick, you're not getting, you know, the most of the training if you just do one really hard session and then have to recover for three days. Um, so it's this, this balance where you'll get you'll get some adaptation from doing low training, you'll get more if you do high intensity, and then how do you distribute that accordingly within a program? And so I think like, yeah, you will get some benefits to, to cardiac adaptations, to stroke volume, to blood volume by doing low intensity training. You'll get more if you do high intensity training. And then so the trick is how do you do the most training you can while maintaining health, consistency, and happiness? And and that's where the the zone tra- two training fits in. It's just like extra, you know? Yeah. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. It does. Yeah. I mean, some some people some people argue, I'm not one of them, and I don't agree with that, but some people argue that mm-hmm. basically the um really minimizing like the high intensity training that you can you can get all of the gains with with uh, none of the pain and and do just so in so in two training and and be and and get to a really high level and and yeah if you're if you're sorry if you're raising ultra marathon sure like if you're racing this low intensity stuff like you know once again one of the main principles of training is specificity so if you're racing iron man i guess but even like like elite Ironmaners are racing at a high intensity. Um, But if you're racing anything over eight hours, then sure, you don't ever have to do hard stuff because you don't need to do it in the race either. And you're going to, you know, get to that, to that level without it. But if you're racing anything that involves threshold buffering capacity, you know, you, if you need to increase your VO2 max, if you need to increase your threshold, if you need to increase your economy, you're going to have to do higher intensity work um, for sure. So yeah, I think like it, it, no matter what, you can't do all your training in zone two or low intensity. Yeah. My my, my take is that I think, I think there are some extremely talented athletes that can get a lot of adaptations by just, let's say in terms of cyclists, we have a lot of people that just they call it just ride and then they get really yeah. fit but i think those are the exceptions not the not the rule and and most people will plateau uh, not necessarily quickly but within a reasonable time frame they will see very diminishing returns by by that and even that's something that i see with with a lot of athletes actually that have been doing a lot of ironmans that they kind of even get worse at some point even though they mm-hmm. do a lot of training but it's maybe maybe they do it do a bit too much of it or too long and they're just constantly tired from the volume of training but and mm-hmm. cannot like do any quality training in between that too so, yeah. so maybe it's more a case of well you have these periods before your ironman or your ultra marathon where yeah the focus should be on the the specific training which in this case is low intensity for most yeah. people but then mm-hmm. between those periods you you supplement with that sprinkle of of high intensity or whether it's threshold or vo2 max or whatever it is to to improve your capacities yeah and i wonder too like the history of these athletes who are benefiting from yeah just super in you know if they just train like 30 hours a week of just riding let's say um 
I wonder if uh, if they were junior athletes before and they did a lot of high intensity throughout their junior U23 careers. And then now they have those adaptations, you know, and then they're essentially just maintaining those adaptations through the low intensity, you know, maybe with a bit of sprinting here and there, then they race and they're going to have some high intensity when they're racing. And so that is enough to just kind of keep them at the level that they're already at. Whereas if you have a, like a couch potato who then gets into training first, if they just do low intensity training, that's actually probably hard for them. So, you know, they're going to have all these adaptations, but then they're going to plateau because they never got those adaptations previously from high intensity type stuff. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I totally agree yeah. with, with that. And and I think with like the, f- the people that are, yeah, just riding for 30 hours, there's a lot of natural intensity in there because they're not going to do it on Swift. They're going to do it in the mountains and, and uh, yes. maybe with their friends and stuff. So, so it might look yeah. like on average, it's all easy riding, but there will be sprinkles of intensity in there. And, and I think they are probably the kind of people that, you know, you put them in a lab and they have a, 70 or vo2 max without really yeah. training and and then yeah. yeah you can you can get far with with that um exactly yeah well uh, what about the the things that you said that you you were working on as part of your phd with uh, cardiac fatigue and how it relates to overreaching what what mm-hmm. is the current status on that <laughs> okay so i went through this whole journey on exercise induced cardiac fatigue throughout my phd so at the start i was convinced that Exercise-induced cardiac fatigue was one of the reasons why you would see underperformance from um, overreaching. So say you had, yeah, like a three-week really hard training camp, and by the end of it, you're underperforming um, because you're so tired. And yeah, my theory was that that could, could be a cardiac, you know, reason. A reason for it would be cardiac. Um, and so I started out doing cardiac fatigue research, I did one study that was looking at differences in in cardiac fatigue following 25 kilometer, 50 kilometer, 80 kilometer, and 160 kilometers of, of trail ultramarathon running. And what we were expecting to see was that following, you know, the longer distance events, you would have more decrease in cardiac function, so more cardiac fatigue. And we didn't see that, which was, it kind of went against the literature. Um, what we actually found was that, if anything, the, the athletes that worked harder, so more of the 25K type athletes, they had a bit more cardiac fatigue or a decrease in some of these parameters. So say more decrease in ejection fraction, less blood being pumped out of the heart per beat. Um, and so, yeah, we were like, okay, Maybe it's not duration, like the literature tells us. Maybe it's intensity. So then I started getting into some of that. And now <laughs> now I'm just not entirely sure if exercise-induced cardiac fatigue really exists. <laughs> I think that um, there will be cases where you can overload the heart, and it's in particular the right ventricle, Um because it has thinner walls, it's it's more susceptible to to these long bouts of exercise under high pressure, and so it can essentially dilate in a non-functional way. So it dilates, and it's not able to pump contract as well, and so then the right heart is driving some of this um, reduction in cardiac function, and you do see that in some cases, but it's seems to be quite rare, um, certainly not happening after just any given like ultra marathon or, or any of the types of exercise that I did in my studies. Um, and so really, I'm starting to think that what we've been seeing in the literature is as exercise induced cardiac fatigue is actually just changes in the loading conditions around the heart. So you say, you know, you're dehydrated, you're really you've got all this peripheral vasodilation after you exercise. And so less blood is returning to the heart. Then you're also going to have this sustained elevation in heart rate after you exercise. And so the heart's beating faster, but pumping out less blood per beat. And kind of all of these conditions make it look like the heart. If you're doing echo, you're doing, you know, yeah, some ultrasound or MRI. It makes it look like the heart is working less well, but it's actually just totally different conditions if mm. you will yeah so then i have done a study that that we don't have the cardiac data on it yet where we did 
overreach athletes. Um, so we caused an underperformance from overtraining uh, in a three-week training block. Um, and we have the cardiac data on that. And so, you know, pre- previous to my PhD, I would have said, yeah, like we're going to see this cardiac fatigue. <laughs> and now I don't know. I don't, I don't think we will, but we do have the data. So, we, so we're going to look at that and I can get back to you about the results from that one. But um, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. New theory, what, probably not going to be a thing. <laughs> what, what about um, the fact that what about heart rate? So in overreached, mm-hmm. overtrained athletes, you tend to see an inability to to reach maximum heart rate or close to maximum heart rate, yes. basically a suppressed heart rate. What is yes. that what is that caused by? Oh yes, good question. Um we don't know exactly what it's caused by at all. Um I think it's it's mediated by the brain. So I do think it's an autonomic kind of suppression change but it's not one that you would see at rest so like one thing i think one of the big distinguishing factors um or an important factor is that if you are overreached it's not necessarily going to show up in your resting waking heart rate or heart rate variability um, but it will show up during exercise so yeah like you said maximal heart rate is going to be suppressed by about five to ten beats um and even some maximal exercise especially above those intensities of about 70%, that will be um, down by about five to 10 beats as well. And yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's a centrally mediated, like autonomic kind of suppression of heart rate. It's like a reduction in central drive, if you will. So your brain's just like, no, we're not doing it. That's mm. my theory. Um, but yeah, we really need to get into those mechanisms further. Um, we don't have that data yet. And, and you mentioned HRV. I was going to ask about that. Is, is that something mm-hmm. that you are in, interested in or, or see a potential for with regard to well, now we're kind of morphing into almost uh, overtraining or reaching uh, yeah. rather than cardiac function. But yeah, wh- how do you see your re- uh, uh, HRV playing a role potentially in uh, yeah. in athlete monitoring? So yeah, uh, the way I see heart rate variability, like I I have an Oura ring. I like you know I like playing around with the data, um, but the big thing is it can't distinguish between your like acute fatigue which would be normal training fatigue and the fatigue that's going to cause underperformance. So you're overreaching fatigue and like it won't be able to distinguish that. And it's just because it's not sensitive enough. You know, there's no threshold of heart rate variability. That's going to say, Oh, this is, this is bad, but this is really bad. It's just kind of like a linear progression. As you get more tired, your heart rate variability is going to look worse and worse. And so there's no like one particular, oh, now it went down by five beats when I woke up or went up by five beats. And that is going to tell me I shouldn't train today, you know? So I think you can use it as a general monitoring tool. You can use it, you know, to track like general levels of fatigue, general levels of like, am I adapting well to the training? Am I recovering okay from the training? Um, but you can't use it to say, oh, I shouldn't train today. You know, hmm. does that like, yeah. does that ring true to you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my experience is I, I used HRV daily for, gosh, I don't know, two, almost three years, I would say. And, but I, I stopped using it. I would say, when was it? Seven months or so ago. And yeah, I haven't really looked back to be honest. Like I, I'm yeah. not saying that it's not useful or can't be useful, but I also haven't found that I miss it. Like I think, I yeah. think that there's a case of there's so much data and you kind of have to choose a bit what you focus on and, and uh, then you can mm-hmm. do a ju- good job with it, but you can't do yeah. a good job with all of the data that exists. So, so for yeah. me, I have found that, well, actually, it might be better to just focus a bit more on my perception. And and that's a bit of yeah. a cop-out answer because you can focus on your perception even while you're collecting data. So <laughs> so it's not one or the other, but um, but I haven't necessarily found that, that it has added too much in terms of me taking action on the on the data that I've seen during the time mm-hmm. that I that I used it. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. It's like 
it's useful in when you're starting out and you really want to see how things affect you. So like, let's say you have glass of wine before bed and then you wake up and your heart rate variability is bad and you're like, okay, neat. Like wine affects me or, you know, heat training affects me or, you know, these things are, are altering my autonomic baseline, let's say. Um, and so that's interesting to know. But then once you have that knowledge, you know, that awareness, you don't need the feedback, you know, you can yeah. just be like, yeah, I know that when I drink two beers, it's going to change my heart rate variability in the morning. I'll probably still train fine, but maybe I wasn't perfectly, you know, wasn't yeah. perfect. And then yeah. just don't eat it after that. Yeah. 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 That's fair. Yeah. Another example is that I definitely saw the impact of travel, uh, for example, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not talking mm-hmm. uh, transatlantic travel or anything like that, but just normal uh Tra- travel of a, a few a few hours or even had 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 a big mm-hmm. impact and that's something that i learned from from using the data and then seeing that okay it also impacted performance in training the day after that's or the fun. days after so and then that's yeah. something that's, like, that's, that's yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um on cardiac function adaptations and all of these topics is there anything else that you think we should talk about before we move on to the the next topic yes i remember one thing that uh that I didn't mention. So yeah, that idea that athletes plateau, their stroke volume will plateau at about 60 to 70% of max. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I neglected to talk about that. So there is this idea that, yeah, you're kind of regular athlete. If you're doing a ramp test, say, and you're trying to go up to max at about 60 to 70% of your VO2 max, your stroke volume will plateau. And that is certainly the case for, a lot of people, but we do find that with super well-trained athletes, elite athletes, their stroke volume will actually continue to go up to more blood will be pumped out per beat all the way to max. And we think that that is driven largely by the ability of the heart to relax in diastole. So suck in more blood. And then, so that allows it to pump out more blood all the way to max. Um, and so that would be one of those adaptations that would come from, years of training and it's going to be that mixture of yeah, the zone two, but also some high intensity training. And um, yeah, those are kind of the big differences. One of the, yeah, one of the main differences in performance between uh, an elite person and a kind of just average athlete will be that ability to continue to increase the amount of blood being pumped out all the way to max. Yeah. So, so with that, is there, is there a, like a threshold level of ability where, you really need to go like do we know anything about that should a person that is a if we talk about the running that is a 45 minute 10k runner should do they need to go to max to because they can keep increasing stroke volume or do you need to be a 35 minute 10k runner or a 55 do, do we know anything like that i don't think we know that yet um i think that yeah we simply have this distinction of like kind of elite versus lesser trained and yeah and and honestly it's so hard to measure like cardiac output stroke volume during maximal exercise that we just don't have a ton of data on it um but yeah i think that it's just kind of this gradual adaptation that will occur over years and years and years of training and so that's why you see it yeah with the elite athletes say they've been doing this for 10 years. They're doing 20 to 30 hours of training per week and it's their job. They're the ones who you'll certainly see that ability. Um, so yeah, it's just right. this like chronic adaptation. And am I completely misremembering things here or is there mm-hmm. some differences that have been observed between men and women in this regard? Yeah. So, I mean, men, the will have much greater stroke volumes and cardiac outputs than women. And that is not entirely just scaled to body size. So men, yeah, even if you took a man and a woman and they were exactly the same body size, the men, man heart, (laughs) male heart will likely have a greater stroke volume, cardiac output, you know, dimensions than the, the female heart. Um, and also similarly for blood volume, male athletes will have greater blood volumes and that's kind of independent of just body size. Um, and then the, the other big thing is because of the pulmonary circulation, um, women have a greater 
chance of having this um, hypoxemia, which is basically that the blood is traveling when, when you're an elite athlete. So when, when the heart is able to pump large volumes of blood at a very high rate, and particularly in women, the blood is essentially being pumped through the pulmonary circulation so fast that there's not enough time for all of the oxygen to bind to the hemoglobin. And so they're getting to these hypoxic states during high-intensity exercise um, that you wouldn't expect to see in, a, in an athlete. Um, and that can happen more often in women than men, although it does happen in men too. And it's only happening when, yeah, essentially so much blood is being able to be pumped out of the heart. So it's, it's almost like the negative side of this elite adaptation. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. With the <laughs> men versus women difference, I, mm-hmm. I refer to specifically that you have to, like you can keep increasing stroke volume with increasing intensity because that's oh, where mm-hmm. I, I remembered, but I may be completely misremembering this, that there was some differences between men and women in, in this regard, even of that, similar abilities. I actually don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I might be mixing um, things yeah. up. So don't, yeah, don't, I don't, <laughs> don't believe that it's correct either. Um, yeah. But coming back to the hypoxemia, then do you, uh, have you used, played around with NIRS devices, SMO2 or anything like that? A little bit. Um, I would like to get into that more. Uh, we did use it in my the overreaching study that I was talking about where we were looking at, yeah, whether there was exercise-induced cardiac fatigue. We also use the NEARS and we're trying to, yeah, look at these kind of peripheral changes versus central changes. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I don't have enough work there to really know much about it. <laughs> right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's, let's move on then to a second topic that I wanted to, to discuss with you, with your background in uh, mm-hmm. a elite athletic uh, performance and in coaching. Mm-hmm. So this is transferring uh, scientific knowledge to practice. So mm-hmm. um, let's start a bit with uh, how relevant do you think that uh, the scientific knowledge that, uh, that people like yourself are, are uncovering, how relevant is it for real-world athletes and coaches? Yeah, good question. Um, I think that there is this dialogue between coaches and physiologists where, like, not to throw them under the bus, but Steve Magnus tweeted something that was like, uh, sports science is five to ten years behind what coaches are doing, right? Coaches are ten years ahead. And I would say that's not true i would say there's just this give and take so sometimes coaches are ahead sometimes scientists are ahead depends on the area and that it can be very complementary if the coaches and the scientists are working together um and then sometimes it's not you know sometimes we're doing these studies that really do not have an application to sport and that's fine but like my work in particular i think it can be applied to to athletes and to coaches. And I think that if that dialogue is happening, the exercise physiologists can really, really help raise the performance of the, you know, of the athletes. Like if we think of, you know, Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, their coach seems to be very much into the science and it's working, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, we can't deny that it's working. And so it's almost like if you're willing to have that dialogue and explore what science has to offer, then it can be super relevant. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's how I think. Yeah. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I agree. Uh, I have this mm-hmm. podcast with entry people like you. So, so of course yeah. I agree that I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think you can always find examples of the opposite. Like Daniela Reif has been coached by Brett Sutton and winning mm-hmm. 10 world titles. And, and that is with a completely like coach driven rather than science driven yeah. approach. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's call it like that. So, so mm-hmm. it's, but, but yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, Jan Frodeno, uh, coached by Dan Lorang, and and so on. Like there, are, there are many examples. I think I think both mm-hmm. can work, but yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right when you say that when when there is a dialogue, then that gives the potential to to e- do even better work for coaches, mm-hmm. get their efforts to perform better, and and on the other side as well for scientists to do more relevant research, answer questions that are uh, really applicable to improving mm-hmm. athletic performance. Um, how did you, when you were coaching, apply 
things that you learned in your research or from your colleagues or just reading in general? How did you apply that into your coaching? Do you have some good examples of that? Yeah, I so yeah, it's kind of funny. It, I think that coaching is very much a almost an art. <laughs> like so even with the science background, I do think you end up doing a lot of things by feel, by how you feel the athlete is um responding to the training and almost yeah, less like I didn't say I didn't have my athletes come in and do, you know, VO2 max testing and and lactate testing and stuff. But I did base my training off of I guess like certain basic exercise physiology principles and like big ones for me it's like health and consistency and recovery you know, you can only train, you can only get the most out of your training if you can maintain that consistency and if you can stay healthy. That's, you know, the big thing. And so a lot of my coaching is along, you know, avoiding the overreaching, avoiding the low energy availability, um, you know, really trying to maintain health. And it's really hard with triathlon, as you know, you know, it's just balancing three sports. We're always on that line of overdoing it. Um, but yeah, I think like where I pull a lot of the science in is that idea that unless you are feeling good and adapting well to the training, you're likely just kind of, you're not going anywhere. You're either going down (laughs) or you're plateauing. And so we need to be able to have the energy through both fuel and recovery, like from sessions to push really hard sometimes, you know, small amounts of times. And then, and then you can get that volume in as a recovery kind of session too. Um, but really, yeah, it's all about adaptation to training for me. And I, I don't know if that's a very good example, but it's, it's like applying that feel to the, to the science, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Basic, basic principles, but then exactly how you apply them, like, is it what, what what is the exact session how many intervals like that kind of thing is you, you can't really say how a study on 25 year olds 25 year old college males how it will apply to a 45 year old female with three kids and exactly. a job like that sort of thing yeah so there, yeah, that's exactly. where you have to use the the feel more than the, the science um yeah. and uh is there any example that you have where you would have like directly gone let's say against what might have been like let's say scientifically valid or do you have any example of that directly against um hmm uh i mean like (laughs) yeah so i guess i mean like right now let's say this isn't necessarily like backed by science but this whole yeah trend of zone two training let's go into that um for my athletes who are training only about seven to 10 hours a week, I would not get dragged into this idea that we need to focus on low intensity training. Mm-hmm. What we're trying, what I'm trying to do is get them to consistently be able to train. So yeah, it's, it's like you want to be able to train hard for a few sessions a week and then you can go, you know, more moderate or or easy for the other sessions. It doesn't even have to be like make sure you're below lactate of two millimole or whatever. It doesn't have to be like that. It just has to be low enough intensity that you're getting a stimulus, but you're able to recover from the high intensity sessions. And so it's like, I mean, any coach, anyone who's coaching who's not getting pulled into these weird Twitter things we'll we'll keep doing what they're doing and that is you know there needs to be some overload so there needs to be some high intensity work there also needs to be the low intensity to provide that volume and complement complement the high intensity work and within the constraints of the athlete so if they can only train 10 hours a week then you kind of maximize what you can in those 10 hours you know Hmm. so yeah i think it's just kind of not getting pulled into the hype a lot of the time yeah 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 no mm-hmm. that's that's a good example it does go against some studies i guess but it also yeah. goes with many others that have shown that well some extremely intense training protocols have have given good results of course the, mm-hmm. the thing is that there is not a lot of like long-term studies about anything whether it's low intensity or yeah. training but yeah, exactly. that being said like that that example of low intensity training 
I, I would be really interested in seeing some more studies on that because we, we don't really know much about it at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, for example, in elite athletes, what is the difference between training right just below LT1 versus training significantly below it? Like, let's say zone mm-hmm. one versus mm-hmm. zone two in a five zone system. Like, mm-hmm. what, what are the real differences? Like, that, that would be. I bet it's speed training. <laughs> yeah. That's my, my, my bet is that if you go too low, you're just D training. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be. But, it, but does it, doesn't it also depend on how much of it you do? Yeah, so if you have so if you have if you have 50 hours then then you might be good <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. yeah it's that intersection between intensity and duration and mm-hmm. yeah it's just you can go for really long really slow or you can go for less long and less slow and yeah mm-hmm. and uh let's see here what, what what are some pitfalls to avoid when it comes to applying scientific knowledge in practical application Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest things are that you need to be, in order to have the most benefits from training, you have to be consistent. And so that is where like, yeah, the low intensity training does have its benefits is that if you can stay consistent and, you know, train every day and not have um, any setbacks, you're going to probably do better than someone who's training hard, but then having to, to stop. Right. So I think a, a big thing is finding your amount of training or intensity of training, or, you know, that type of training that allows you to recover. And then, and then with that, we've got the fueling. So yeah, don't do low carbohydrate stuff if you're a triathlete, because you need you need to fuel for your sessions, and so the the fueling becomes super important. And I think a lot of athletes get pulled into different diets, different like kind of hype. You know, like let's try and be in you know low carb, high fat, so that we can be in ketosis during our ultra marathons or whatever, and really what's happening here is you're putting stress on your body and you're not allowing your body to adapt to the training to the best of its abilities. And so it's always about what can you do to train and then adapt to that training. So yeah, the recovery piece is the only part where you get faster, obviously, if you get better. And so you have to think about the stimulus and then you have to think about the recovery from that stimulus. Um, yeah. Yeah, those are great, uh, all great, great piece of advice. And mm-hmm. and with that, uh, may, maybe some of this might apply. I don't know. But knowing what you know now, what mm-hmm. is there anything that you wish you would have done differently as an athlete when you were racing? Yeah, I think. I mean, it. I mean, being a female athlete, I think that just now, like just this last few years, we've started to realize how different the progression is between a female athlete's development and a male athlete's development. And I mean, my trajectory was the same as all my peers in that we were expected from say the age of 18 to 24 to just kind of get faster. Cause that's what happens with male development, you know, barring injuries, men with through, you know, puberty and through testosterone and through muscle mass gains and through, you know, all of the changes their bodies go through, they just get faster. <laughs> and female athletes don't, you know, they, through that 18 to 20 year gap, a lot of female athletes gain body fat, which then makes you for a you know, short amount of time slower. And you're not having those same benefits of the testosterone that men get. And so what happens is women through that, you know, 20 around 18 to 20 year old kind of age range, they're getting slower. And then because they're getting slower and because they maybe gain some body fat, then they start going on these, you know, their coaches. I mean, in in my case and in most of my peers case, coaches are trying to drive the losing the, that body fat, uh, which is, you know, you try and do that. All that's going to happen is you're going to get stress fractures and go into rides and make everything worse. Um, So essentially my whole like cohort of female athletes, we all were super injured and unhealthy by about the age of 21, 21 to 23. Like everyone has stress fractures. Everyone is 
dropping out of races. Like if you look across even the world of female athletes in my ITU age range, we were a disaster. Um, and that was driven by the coaches and driven by a lack of understanding of the science. And so this is, <laughs> this is one thing to that point of, you know, is science ahead of coaching or is coaching ahead of science. This was one of the cases where science was ahead of the coaching because we knew about, you know, female athlete triad. We knew about low energy availability since the 1990s, like 1980 was when Dr. Drinkwater started doing this research. And yet it wasn't applied until recently with Mar with Margot Mountjoy. So yeah, knowing what I know now, it's, it's that female athletes have a different, you know, physiological trajectory than men and that we need to just be super, I guess it's like, um, accommodating during that time frame and don't expect the female athletes to just get faster because they probably won't. Um, and then I have this long-term vision because these female athletes are probably going to peak, you know, closer to 24, 25, 26, even closer to 30, you know, it has to be this long-term vision for, for the, uh, female athlete. So yeah, that was a long rant, but I, I can't tell you how sad it makes me to hear about that and also that I'm completely unsurprised to hear it because it's such yeah. a common story. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's just something, uh, a drum that we need to keep on banging, I think, with mm -hmm. uh, with, with avoiding that kind of of, uh, of narrative with uh, yeah, lo losing weight to get faster. And yeah, it happens yeah. and it happens at that level, especially, I think, like yeah. young, younger athletes, talented athletes that are going for uh european continental and uh and world level uh, triathlon so mm -hmm. it's but it happens everywhere but but i think yeah. that we hear a lot of stories from from those settings from different federations and and still to this day so i think that we're clearly still behind science on on yeah. that front yeah, we were really bad in Canada. Like the, mm. there was like a couple of years where a bunch of female athletes got kicked out of our developmental group simply because they were they had gained weight and <laughs> they weren't performing and it's just like looking back that's awful. You yeah. know, they were they were de denied the opportunity for further development because they were going through like natural what happens naturally, like that's really bad. And so, yeah, I know. I mean, I think things are getting slightly better. I think we have a bit more of an understanding, but uh, yeah, it's once again, it's like the science is there. We know how it works. And then it's just having that dialogue with the coaches, you know, knowledge translation, uh, you know, educating the coaches and the athletes and everything about how, um, how it works is I think, yeah, the big thing now. Yeah. And, uh, if we finish off with uh, just in addition to what you said already, uh, do you have three key pieces of advice that you would give to listeners of this podcast, uh, triathletes and endurance athletes? Uh, that can be about anything, not just the topics we discussed today. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I've already mentioned a couple of them, but so the first one is health. And that is that, yeah, if you don't have health, then you can't you know, be your best athlete. So that's going to come to nutrition and recovery and balancing your training with, with the rest of your life. And then the second one, because of that health, then you get consistency. So, um, you know, if we can achieve the health, then we can have consistent training and it doesn't have to be hard all the time. It doesn't have to be easy all the time. It just has to be consistent. And then the third part then becomes happiness because it's easy to kind of, once you check off number one and number two, you get into a good routine and you're training really well. Um, you know, you can have some results, but it's after a period of time in there, you're going to lose some of the, the joy or the spark or that motivation. And um, that's, you know, you can be a, less trained, but if you're happy and motivated and excited, you're going to do much better in races than, than if you're depressed and burnt out and just not loving it. Um, so happiness ends up being, and, and that might be balance with the rest of your life. It might just be like changing up the training, whatever it is. If you can have all three, like consistency, health, happiness. That's when you'll be your best yeah. athlete. Completely agree. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, yeah. Three great pieces of advice. And let's mm -hmm. do the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? I like uh, Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure. 
And uh, what is an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? This is both good and bad, but uh, resilience and grit. I definitely benefit from it, but it then I get burnt out. <laughs> and uh, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? I really look up to my PhD mentor, Jamie Burr. Uh, he's just super fearless when it comes to research. So, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, thank you so much, Alex. This has been a fantastic chat. I really enjoyed it. Where can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Twitter, I'm superalex underscore C on Twitter. I think that's that's my best one right now. All right, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you so much again. Uh, this was great. And uh, hopefully we can do it again another time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with a bunch of links, a number of uh, Alexander's studies, uh, but also some related episodes, Dr. Margot Montjoy, Alex Hutchinson, and uh, the Ben Trenestad study that we mentioned. Also, Michael Rosenblatt, who I mentioned as being a past guest on the podcast discussing interval training. One clarification that I do want to make is that when we discussed the Renestad study in this interview with uh, Alex, uh, I misunderstood her to mean that there was a brand new study. And of course, it is not, it's, it's not old, it's from 2020, but it, it is that famous Renestad short versus long interval study that has been around and has been discussed a bit, even though I haven't made a specific episode on it, but it has been mentioned in in episodes uh, previously many times on the podcast. So so it's not a new, new study in that sense. It is the one that if you have heard of it, you've probably already heard about it, uh, if that makes sense. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Sebastian Sitko, who's a scientist and a coach with a particular focus on cycling. And we discuss FTP, VO2max, lab testing, and a number of different training topics. So uh, um, again, a mix of science and practice coming up in that episode. And finally, before we close out this episode, a couple of housekeeping items. First, this is the very last chance to register for our training camp in Mallorca at the end of March. Uh, We will keep the registrations open until the end of this week, so until the 5th of February, if there is still availability. Uh, So if you are interested, then contact me as soon as you hear this, and hopefully we can still get you in. More information about the camp is available on scientifictriathlon.com, so check it out if you don't know what it's all about, and email me if you want to have more information or you want to register. Secondly, as I said at the start of the podcast, if you have questions about swim training for triathlon that you want answered in the next Q&A episode that I will do, uh, then send me your questions on email or Instagram at latest on the 31st of January. So that should be tomorrow by the time that this episode goes out. Big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Training to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get a special Senate and TTS bundle that includes the swim trainer and a number of training plans and on-demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving traffic.